everyone, and welcome to the Novic Gaming Podcast, a podcast in which we explore the business and future of video games. I'm Aaron Bush, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Moritz Bayard-Lentz. Moritz was a competitive gamer, went on to build and lead Goldman Sachs Global Gaming Practice. He spent the past three or so years at Bitcraft as a partner on their venture team, and just recently and excitedly joined Lightspeed Venture Partners to lead the firm's investments into all things gaming. So Moritz... One, congrats on the new role. And second, welcome to the pod. Thank you. It's actually my second time. That's true. Yeah, number two. You're in a rare company to, to join as a guest twice. So uh, exciting stuff. Um, but before, we'll talk about Lightspeed in a moment. But before uh, we do that and we lose ourselves in the gaming discussion, I actually wanted to start with a tangent here, which is that I recently learned that you participate in these wild races, uh, like the World Marathon Challenge, which I think is when you run seven marathons in seven days and seven continents, which I, just blows my mind. And another one I saw on your profile, I'm going to butcher the name, but it's Marathon de Sables, uh, which is like in a desert. So... Morris, I just want to know, why do you run these crazy races? And maybe what's the what's the craziest one that you've done so far? Well, I, I think the Marathon de Sables is, is surely the craziest one to date. Um, we'll embark on this World Marathon Challenge and, as you said, run seven marathons on seven continents in seven consecutive days uh, the end of this month. So, so training is at a peak right now. Um, that might be crazier or not. I, you know, remains to be seen. Uh, they're both reasonably hard to do and require probably a lot of mental strength, even more so than, than physical strength. Why? Um, you know, I don't know how, how long this podcast is intended to, to <laughs> be, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, in the end, I guess in the summary, is, is growth happens outside of the comfort zone and it gets addicting. Um, but with these races that go over multiple days, it sometimes gets really dark that I think you only have that perspective and have that reap that reward oftentimes a couple of weeks or even months after they passed. Um, it's also a great way to make, meet and maintain true friends. Um, the the World Marathon Challenge I'm actually doing together with a very good friend uh, who I met at the Marathon de Sables. Uh, both of us suffering through multiple days, uh, self-sufficiently traversing the Sahara, um, me with food poisoning for the first oh. three days, which didn't add a lot of fun to it. But um, I mean, those are, those are events where you really get to know yourself and, and others. And um, the two of us, already two and a half years ago planned to do this World Marathon Challenge together. So I'm excited it's finally coming up. Um, we're actually using the event to also fundraise um, for novel treatment for depression. Uh, mm. We both had family cases um, and, and it's a topic that's close to our heart. And um, yeah, so trying to connect our wild ambitions also with, with causes that we think matter. Yeah. Well, that's great. No, that's really awesome to hear all, all of that. And especially the part about growth is when you step out of your comfort zone. Um, I love hearing that. And I totally agree. Although I'm not the one running at nights on days on end in the desert. Um, <laughs> so maybe I need to up my own game. Oh, we still have ways. spots for Antarctica uh, on, on the 31st oh, of Antarctica. January. Well, let me let me think about that. And I will probably need several years of training to feel comfortable doing that. But that's fantastic for you and your team and everybody else who um, is into these 
crazy races. I will be rooting you on probably uh, from very far away on that one, but that's really exciting stuff. Um, but anyways, Morris, we should probably talk about video games and venture capital a little bit here. Um, and oh, I think we fine. should. I know, fine. <laughs> uh, let's go ahead and start and just talk about Lightspeed a bit since this is this is new for you too. Um, and I guess to start, why this change? Why did you join Lightspeed Venture Partners and why now? Yeah, so... Um, you know, it was completely serendipitous. Um, I was not actively looking, um, especially since I loved what we were doing at Bitcraft. Um, I'm also very proud of, of what we all did together over the last two, three years there. Um, this happened during vacation in Greece, uh, of, of all places, um, and actually in mainland Greece. Uh, my wife dragged me into a yoga session uh, that I wasn't particularly keen on. Then she had to step out herself to take a call. And um, so I was left with one participant and the instructor. And it turned out that after a full hour of yoga and some conversation afterward, the other participant and, and me, we actually knew each other. There was Nicole Quinn, who co-heads the consumer practice at Lightspeed. Oh, wow. And the two of us overlapped at Stanford. Um, and so we, we started a conversation there. She told me that they'd been looking for someone to um, up their game, no pun intended, uh, in, in gaming. And um, that is when the exploration and the process started, which took about two, three months. And ultimately for me, um, you know, as much again, as, as, as I love what we all accomplished at Bitcraft, it was just a bit too good and too exciting to turn down. Um, this is a firm that manages over $18 billion in assets under management, made 500 plus investments, you know, many notable ones across enterprise and, and consumer and um, healthcare and, and fintech, and uh, a firm that now wants to start a gaming practice and puts that trust uh, to a last, large extent, at least in, in my hands, um, a very compelling value proposition and, and platform to work from. And so, it was a hard decision, you know, I'll, I'll be honest about that, um, but uh, I feel good about it and I feel excited about it and, and you know, happy to chat a bit about what, what we have planned. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and, and talk about that. What's the, what's the game plan? What is the, yeah, the plan at LSVP to build out that gaming vertical? What's that going to look like? Yeah, so I, I think, first of all, it's important to highlight that gaming is not new to Lightspeed, quite the opposite. Um, Jeremy Liu, who was, I believe, the first consumer investor at, at Lightspeed, um, has been investing in gaming since 2006, 2007. Um, so I think to date we've deployed over 300 million in, in over 30 investments in gaming. Uh, so it's definitely up there among the generalists uh, with, with a focus in gaming, in addition to I would say a gaming VC industry that has historically been dominated by specialists uh, like Bitcraft, like Makers, Griffin, Galaxy. Um, and so uh, this is the first proper foot forward, I guess, in terms of organizational setup. Um, we'll have a three-person core gaming team. But I think one of the things that's exciting for founders too is we will loop in experts across the existing consumer and enterprise investment domains at Lightspeed, where we have people who uh, invested in companies like Snap on the consumer side or Stability AI on, on the enterprise side. And, you know, as we all know, games 
basically taking the shape of platforms, social networks, economies, um, and deeply fueled by core tech like AI. I think those are great, you know, flexible deal teams that will construct depending on the exact um, opportunity that we're evaluating. We'll be investing across stages. Uh, so all the way from the seed stage to a pre-IPO, pre-M&A stage, we have from the get-go dedicated professionals on the core gaming team, both for early stage and then growth stage. Um, the people I'll be working closest with are Paul Murphy, who also heads Europe uh, for Lightspeed and who founded uh, both Dots and Giphy. And Shan Shan, who's been with Lightspeed for three and a half years, hedge fund background, and she's exclusively focused on growth gaming and has done so for a while. So great core team helped by uh, you know, seasoned investment professionals and, and a founder success team. Gotcha. A couple follow-up questions. Um, I guess specifically with gaming, what what gaming categories is Lightspeed investing in? Are you kind of covering the spectrum or are you trying to narrow into certain zones? Yeah, so for me, th this is also something I've spent some time on over the last two months, crunching a bunch of data too, and, and also trying to tease out like where have historically been actually the venture re return cases. And um, I think for a lot of people, uh, the the natural answer would be on the platform and tech side, pointing to IPOs of Roblox and Unity. But it is actually quite remarkable how many VC-backed, but also non-VC-backed um, uh, outside return cases have been content and IP. So for us, Game Studios is going to be a focus area. Um, that will primarily be on the early stage side, um, including the seed stage. So Game Studios is one area for us. And then what we call gaming platforms, uh, which is, you know, at scale, something like Discord or, or Roblox. And then third, game technologies, which, which can take many shapes. Anything that helps with the creation of interactive media experiences from game engines and modding to novel 3D creation approaches to AI and procedural generation. We would even look at advances in computer networking that are closely related to gaming or, or interactive experiences and um, anything that relates to technology with regard to the delivery and, and distribution, including even novel devices, uh, including XR. So XR... Uh, and Web3 are both things we'll explore, but I think a little bit more opportunistically for us to focus is really uh, game studios, game platforms, gaming tech. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and I guess just as a, a follow-up, um, obviously one benefit of startups getting to to get investment from Lightspeed is that they get to work with you and that the, the high-quality team that you outlined. Is there anything else you just want to add more? It's on the kind of support that um, founders and companies will get from Lightspeed of uh, if Lightspeed is yeah I mean investor. like to, yeah to me and and this again this is another topic I've I've spent thinking about qu quite a bit but f I think it's a, a tripartite value proposition so to speak I mean the one thing and, and that's probably the most important thing is these are people with authentic and endemic gaming and also founder expertise like I'm not a founder myself Paul is. Uh, we're all dedicated gamers, um, and we can go beyond the gaming expertise in, into consumer and enterprise. Um, I think the platform is important. Uh, you know, 
I love working hard for founders and my founder references, I think, especially in competitive pitch situations are just worth so much. Um, you know, in, in comparison to what we were doing at Bitcraft, this is now a platform with significant capital under management, even in this vintage of funds, there's seven and a half billion dollars to deploy, which I think is hopefully appealing to founders, especially in a in a market that looks very different than it, it does in the last two years. Um, we also are truly global in our support. Um, so there are dedicated investment professionals at Lightspeed across North America, Europe, Israel, India, Asia. Um, so we can meet founders where they are. A big part of the Lightspeed thesis is also that talent and the next uh, you know, range of innovation will be found globally, which to me, with the tools and access to knowledge that we have today makes a lot of sense. And that's, that's on a firm level, that's a thesis. And certainly also for gaming specifically that I'm pretty excited about. And then lastly, I think it's super important to have not just a firm culture, but also a practice culture that really puts founders first. Um, again, like the existing founders and top founders are really our best um, access to deal flow, are our best recommendations in competitive scenarios. And so I think in an industry that oftentimes glorifies stars and, and individual egos, we, we really believe in true partnerships and, and that those build more uh, repeated success. And so um, that's that's the philosophy part of it. And then on the personnel side of things, we have a dedicated founder success team. So these are um, on the gaming side, five plus uh, professionals from the get-go that will help our portfolio companies with PR, marketing, press and media outreach, um, executive talent, as well as developer talent, and then also community among the portfolio companies. Okay, cool. Um, and I, I definitely want to dig spend a lot of this conversation talking about the venture market where we are today, as well as some lessons learned that you've had um, growing as a VC over the past three years. But but one one final question on this before we move to that. I'm curious, Moritz, what did you learn at Bitcraft that you want to take over to, to Lightspeed? And uh, I guess similarly, is there anything new you're hoping to pioneer or do differently now that you're at a new place? Yeah, I mean, honestly, like all, all the things I just mentioned, um, authentic expertise, meaningful, like value at platform and, and rolling up your own sleeves and then the setting the right culture. I would say these are all things I learned at Bitcraft and I think especially Jens um, and the, the other founding general partners. This is something that was always part of the core thesis of, of how to build a VC firm that is actually one that naturally attracts the best talent. So I think these um, this working mode was very much defined by that shared time together. How much we can lean into expertise, into platform, into culture now with also having experts from other domains that we can bring in with a larger and more global platform, which um, uh, with, with, a, with a founder success team that is much more scaled than you know, what we were at least at this point building at Bitcraft. Uh, I think that excites me to just lean into all these things that I think matter, that I learned at Bitcraft, just a notch more. 
Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's go ahead and talk a bit about you as a venture investor, what you've learned over the years and just how you think about a, a few things, uh, which I'm, I'm curious to unpack. And so, Morris, you've now been in the, the venture capital game for, I guess, three years or so. And <laughs> in those three years, we've already seen you know a, an up and down cycle in the market happen pretty quickly. Um, I'm curious, like over that time and seeing all of that and operating with a bunch of companies, um, how have you grown uh, as a venture investor? Like, are there, you know, any ways in which you look at investments differently now than when you first started? You know, it's funny because I think as a as an early stage investor, you can really only rate yourself maybe after six or seven years. Uh, you know, when when That's hopefully true. you have material returns and not just paper gains. Um, and until then, I guess I'll take the markups and syndicates uh, and, and follow investments as at least an indicator that things were going all right. Um, and But coming in in 2020, especially the first half or first nine months of 2020, I think I was actually a pretty terrible investor. I, I didn't lead an investment at Bitcraft during that time, but I was mostly observing and, and learning from uh, Scott and Jens and the team. And I think primarily my problem was that coming from Goldman, uh, where I'd worked for five years, you arrive as a banker with a terrible bias for action. So your, your baseline is to do deals because in banking, you actually only get paid on transactions. Um, it doesn't matter how much, quote unquote, client service you provide and how many meetings you conduct uh, with any of these large companies that you're covering. You only get a percentage fee paid when there is an IPO or a buy side or sell side advisory transaction. And so, you know, in some cases, even if you are advising a company that is uh, purchasing an another one, of course, you don't want them to overpay, but you certainly want them to pay because if they don't pay at all, you make nothing as a banker. And so co coming in with this bias for action was not a helpful thing for an investor role where your job primarily is maybe one of a, of a guardian and not a, a guardian of capital and, and not, uh, um, you know, more, more like a sniper. <laughs> rather than uh, <laughs> rather than yep. <laughs> someone with an automated rifle, you know, <laughs> um, it's funny because I, I, you know, I've been reflecting on that, and and oftentimes deal activity is touted as a measure of success for VC firms. I I I don't think it's as good a metric as it's sometimes made out to be. Ultimately, your LPs will judge you based on your returns. And one might even say that amount of deals is inversely correlated with uh, quality of deals and, and returns of your investments. And so you see these leak tables in banking where they make sense because the amount and, and value of transactions advised on is actually representative of the dollars you're making. Uh, and so the, the more, the better, pretty much in, in banking. In VC, I think it's, it's a much trickier conversation. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and similarly, the venture market is also pretty notoriously power laws driven, uh, where the, you know, the standout companies drive the outsized returns for the industry, but also for um, venture investors, too. And I imagine that that power law dynamic is even more profound 
in gaming, especially on the, you know, the content side, um, just given the kind of the hit driven nature of the industry. And so I'm, I'm curious with that reality in mind, how, how do you think about doing what it takes to land in that top percentile? Um, what, what do you think that takes to, to pull off and practice and what are you doing now at, at light speed to, to ensure as best you can that light speed and the money you're managing there lands in that top percentile of returns? Yeah, ultimately, let's take the example of Game Studios because I think that's a it's a good one. Um, you want to make sure you're backing teams that are that do have a genuine chance at creating something extraordinary. And to land in the top one percent that you mentioned, extraordinary doesn't even mean landing one hit game. It needs to be even more than that. Um, you're looking for talent that ideally has had previous commercial success um, at a big publisher uh, that was responsible for the creation of a commercial um, franchise like Call of Duty or Fortnite or, or League of Legends or Valorant in a leading position. So in some cases as a, as a creator of this IP or as a design director or executive producer, um, in, in some cases um, founders have had previous entrepreneurial successes and, and exits. So you, you know, in the absence of a firm recipe to land in that top percentile, I think the best precursors you have for taking an informed shot are those previous commercial successes and, and, and founder experiences. Ideally, you have founder teams that have also previously worked together in a successful scenario. But that's really the most important thing you can pay attention to. It's a lot more important to have the right team than, you know, I would say the right idea from the get-go, which oftentimes gets refined during pre-production anyway. Um, you certainly want to make sure it's a team that wants to swing big, where the ambition is to build the next Blizzard, to build the next Riot, in addition to just make a great first game. Um, sometimes founders from the get-go focus on cross-media experiences and are you know immediately thinking of creating ip that can also transcend into other media categories while that's obviously ambition and and uh, ambitious and, and can result in a bit of uh, diffusion of, of focus which needs to be managed i think those are all the things you almost want to see and they all have to work out to to land that you know top percentile that you've been mentioning. Uh, obviously, you can make money with game studio investments, probably with the top top 20%, top 10%, but yeah. to build a billion dollar company is is extremely hard. <laughs> that it is. Yeah, that's an understatement, I think. Um, but cool. Uh, I guess I also just wanted to ask, Morris, you've been on a few board of directors um, as a VC so far. Um, and to all the entrepreneurs out there, uh, as you you know, look over all the the boards that you've been a part of and the board meetings that you've been in, um, I'm curious what you've learned about companies who truly make the most out of their their boards or um, you know the work the best with their their board members. Have you spotted any patterns? Do you have any tips? Uh, would love to hear them. Yeah, I think the, the single best advice for founders that I have for running your board meetings would be to treat them as joint problem solving sessions with your investors. Obviously, you want to update everyone on 
um, you know, product, finances, uh, talent, etc. But that should take maybe half of the, say, one and a half hours, two hours that are reserved. Um, the other half should be a, a short list of top two, three items, agenda items, where you believe either thinking through them or um, obtaining the investor perspective would be helpful. Um, investors, especially in the early stage, are really just trying to figure it out with you. Ideally, at least it's how, how we've been treating it at Bitcraft and how we're treating it at, at Lightspeed. If, if that's not the case, then maybe, you know, there wasn't a good investor pick to begin with, but we're not there to, you know, uh, observe you and and all your doings with with a keen eye like we we love to help and we know how hard it is and so draw in investors and once they're once they're invested once they've wired the money they're on your side pretty much and so 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 leverage them Uh, i i i i don't see that as much as i would like to see it really why why do you think that is I think maybe it's, uh, I think it's in some cases still a bit of mistrust or a perceived misalignment of incentives where um, sometimes maybe founders worry that saying the wrong thing or displaying problems prominently um, is something that would not be well perceived by VCs. But I think we'd rather hear about problems early and try and figure out a solution together with you than than hearing about it late when it's hard to steer things around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, cool. Let's go ahead and, and shift gears again and talk about the venture market. We can talk about just kind of the state of the, the market right now, what you're seeing um, in the games corner specifically, and we can kind of hit on a few, a few trends uh, and see what else you're, you're thinking about for the year ahead. But I guess to start, um, Mortz, I'm curious what your outlook is for the venture market in 2023, specifically the the gaming corner of things. Um, just in terms of like maybe compared to the past couple of years, like the number of deals we'll see or the amount raised, um, just those kinds of, of factors. Uh, what are your expectations of how that will change this year? Yeah, I mean, Obviously, none, none, none of us have crystal balls, including uh, VCs. Uh, just don't tell anyone. But um, <laughs> deals very likely, at least compared to the 2021 peak, I think 22 is down already a little bit. And I'd be surprised if 23 exceeds 21 levels and probably won't exceed 22 levels either. Um, valuations, the way it typically works is that that early stage and, and private market valuations follow public valuations. They first trickle into the growth stage where we've already seen in secondary markets, um, you know, the large players like Epic Games, Discord, uh, t- taking hits on their valuations in in accordance with what we've been seeing in the public markets. It oftentimes does take a little bit longer um, to also reach the early stage private markets. But I think we're at that point where at least you wouldn't see anyone going out right now and try and do something crazy. Um, So, yeah, I mean, 
my my you know if you want to pin me down on a number early stage valuations will probably go down something in the domain of like 30 to 50 percent oh wow okay well it's not all sunshine out there i guess and maybe it's a return to normalcy and in some ways uh, definitely at least some some pockets of of the market um but what that means also is that a bunch of companies are some of them are already happening, as you mentioned, um, and, and some will continue to see more sideways rounds or down rounds and likely feel increasing pressure to you know, either run leaner or prioritize profitability more than they would have a year ago. And I'm just curious in your conversations with leaders, like what are those conversations like right, right now and what are you helping CEOs think through there? Yeah, so luckily... Um uh, before my departure at at Bitcraft, kind of during Q1, Q2, and in some cases trickling into Q3, uh, this was a big focus for all the portfolio companies that I'd been working closely with. Um, luckily, a lot of them were able to land pretty substantial capital infusions. Um, you know, by around Q3, Theorycraft, Inworld, Horizon uh, all raised 50, 50, and 40 million dollar Series A. Um, and so there's right now, at least not on the companies that I invested in and, and the boards that I sat on, uh, which, you know, obviously those have been to transition, uh, transition to Bitcraft. And in, in the meantime, um, there are no cases where there is a need to raise capital at the moment. So we try to button that all up. And in most cases, that was a, a capital infusion that would get them through the next uh, 24 months at, at a minimum. And it's also, that probably be my advice to, if you if you are in a situation where you need to raise now, 24 months is probably a, a good time. And um, that might not necessarily mean raising more, but that might mean cutting burn mm -hmm. uh, to to adjust depending on, on um, how much investor interest you can drum up these days. And how does that compare to what companies have normally been raising for over the past couple of years. Um, yeah, 24 months, it seems it seems like an increase, but curious what your mm -hmm. perception on that is. A, a, a little bit. I mean, I would, you know, if, if you just go by the number of months, maybe, maybe average was around 18 months or so. But I think it's better to think about it in terms of what is the next milestone that you're going for and sol solving for that. Um, in the end, between one fundraise and the next, you want to show one substantial means of progress uh, for an early game studio that could be uh, building a prototype, uh, putting out a playable, launching in a test market, especially anything that helps collect data points. And even if that's just playtesting data, ideally it's it's market data of sorts. And if it's not launch data and installs and usage, it could be something like pre-registration, uh, Steam wishlist activity. In an environment like this, founders will look for substance as much as possible. And so I would I would look at the development plan figure out what's a realistic timeline to reach that next milestone, add a bit of buffer, and let that determine how many months of burn should be covered in the next race. That's smart. Um, let's go ahead and 
talk about a few corners of the gaming market here and what you're what you're seeing and and thinking about. Uh, and maybe let's begin with what was all the rage the past couple of years, Web3 gaming, I, which I guess is what we're calling it now. The name changes all the time. Um, but uh, clearly there was a lot of FOMO, um, broken economic models, and it's since been been pretty slammed, not just from the hype cycle, but, you know, frauds and hacks and bad actors as well. And hopefully it's taught both founders and investors to be more prudent there. But I'm curious from your perspective, when you look at Web3, what are you focused on right now, if at all? Um, and how are you approaching ensuring that you don't fall into the the same pitfalls that other people did um, over the past couple of years? Yeah, so this was, I think it's it's very easy in general to have hindsight on things. It's it's a lot harder when you're in the moment of a potential major shift, um, you know, which Web3 certainly has the capacity to, to be that driving force, and it still has, I think. It's a lot more, it's a lot trickier to be cautious and not lean in as an investor because obviously you don't want to miss out. Like FOMO is real. Um, and it results in discussions that are analytical and critical internally at VC firms, but still littered with emotions and, and cognitive biases. It's an incredibly hard task to get this stuff right. Um, and at Bitcraft, we, you know, had different perspectives on how much we should lean into the space, how important we thought uh, this domain would be for the future of gaming how much we should give in on a bar for talent uh, going into this space versus quote-unquote traditional or Web2 gaming, um, how much we should lower the bar for what is an acceptable price or dilution along the way. I think um, a pitch that was too focused on things that just mattered a little bit less than the fundamentals, which is building a great game that is fun. I came up with this super lame thing to say, return to fundamentals, you know, <laughs> fun, fun. <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, but essentially, if you look at blockchain as a, you know, as a value driver, I think that can be a fallacy. I think in itself, it's more a means of value distribution. The, the value for any media category, including gaming, comes from how many eyeballs it can attract for how long. For that, good game design with good core loops with social dynamics that draw people in for months, for years, is so much more critical than how value will be distributed through blockchain. Um, blockchain can be a tool for value creation, especially when it becomes um, an incentive for community, for you know offloading marketing in, into a community, for um, incentivizing maybe players to create levels and items for your game. But I think you can't get around the core principles of, of good game design. And so I look at Web3 Game Studios and I've always looked at Web3 Game Studios simply as game studios. Um, and then whether they want to use Web3 and whether they want to use blockchain for, you know, taking a novel approach to digital identity assets and ownership, that's all fine. But... Um, we can discuss this on page seven of the pitch. You don't need the word Web3 or crypto on the cover. To me, it's like saying, hey, we're building a, an Amazon web service-based game studio. Fine, if, if you want to use that as your backend. But again, like, let's talk about the game. Let's talk about 
who the people are who are founding this game studio, um, what games they've built pre uh, previously, what games they've shipped previously. And let's talk about what you really want to build as an experience for players. And then we can talk about your backend, and then we can talk about whether you want to use the blockchain or not. But yeah, so, so to me, Web3, yeah, we look at Web3 game studios because we look at game studios. Yeah, We also look at uh, Amazon web-based, Amazon web services-based game studios. Yeah, and I guess like a, a next step in kind of that line of questioning too is like, well, you know, do you need the blockchain? Or then like what... If you're an investor, like, is it in tokens? Is it in equity? Um, and it seems like over the past year, it's been interesting to see the innovation, I guess you could call it innovation, and just like financing models and like how how teams are, are raising money in different ways. Um, obviously with, you know, some broken economics underneath in a lot of cases, but I'm curious from, from your standpoint more, it's obviously you're focused on the fundamentals of the game itself first and foremost, but when it comes to investing, are you open to investing and holding tokens? Do you mainly want equity? Like as, as a VC, kind of where do you land in that spectrum of things? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, we have a, we have a blockchain sector team at Lightspeed as well. And then we also have Faction, uh, which is an affiliated fund of, of Lightspeed that focuses exclusively on Web3 um, across gaming, but also other sectors. So there's certainly team members and, and folks that are actually looking full time at, at blockchain Web3. So by all means, as, as a firm and, you know, certainly from the gaming side, I wouldn't want to miss out on a great studio platform or, or technology. Um, we can hold tokens as a firm too. So, so there is that option for us. With tokens, again, I come, you know, to me, this is, yes, this is an innovation in, in, in the industry, but in the end, it's an exchange for between like ownership and a price you pay. And, you know, whether that be in the form of equity or tokens, at least ultimately or in the long run should really not make a major difference from my perspective. Gotcha. That's interesting. Well, let's go ahead and shift from talking about what was all the hype last year to what seems to be all the hype right now, which is AI. Um, based on what you're seeing in deal flow, where are we right now? And the hype versus reality spectrum, how real and, and timely truly is AI in games right now, do you think? Yeah, I mean, so a AI has been a topic that's been fascinating me for a while. Actually, in, in 2010, I took um, machine learning. Uh, I think it was back then it was called intelligent machines um, mm. classes as part of my CS degree. And even during my time at, at IBM and then even at Goldman too, I always had one eye on AI because it was clear that this would be an, a fundamental value driver. Um, I came back to this article that Tim Urban wrote, uh, the author of Wait But Why, amazing blog, uh, by the way. I think in 2015 or 16, he had a great long-form piece, The Road to Superintelligence, with this curve that just goes, um, you know, exponentially. And, and you know, us, us standing here, and this is the history, and then kind of like goes almost vertical from there. It's a bit scary to think about. And when you look at ChatGPT, it just feels so real. And you wonder, especially with the emergence of you know, GPT-4 and, 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 and other innovations that are coming out over the next years. And this is just what you see as a consumer. You don't even know what's going on under the hood. That's not public. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you, you can easily spend all your time exploring that as an investor and, and it will have implications for many sectors. I think that's absolutely true to say. Does it have major implications for gaming? I think so. Um, I mean, InWorld was probably one of my favorite investments at Bitcraft um, when we let the seed in December 21 um, amazing group of people with really deep expertise, especially in conversational AI, even reaching back prior to the, the Siri days and building a platform for intelligent characters and NPCs in, in video games, effectively an Unreal Engine or Unity, but not for environments and, and visual design, but for characters and logical design. So you would find yourself in these immersive environments and have totally natural and unscripted conversations with a, you know characters from a wide variety of background and personal attributes and behavioral styles that you can build within minutes. Um, this stuff already works. It's just fascinating. And then, you know, especially over the last, I guess, two months, what we've seen around automated 2D and even 3D asset generation uh, on top of mid-journey and, and stability AI companies like Scenario GG for 2D or Luma with Nerf and procedural 3D creation on, on the 3D side. It's really mind-blowing and it's very different from the tools that were available to developers six months ago. Um, will that have implications on the development pipeline like concept art, for example, it's very easy to see how, you know, producing concept art is just now a matter of minutes versus hours and, and days. Um, and assets for especially mobile games, you know, if you just need another potion in your in your inventory, you know, to create another hundred or, or even isometric um, uh, visuals, it's also a matter of minutes these days. I think it's very hard to say from an investor perspective what makes for a great investment and, and venture return case. Like, you know, we're lucky to on the enterprise side to have invested in stability AI. So, so the underlying, I think the underlying core on which this all builds that seems to be a a, a value driver. Everything that's built on top of it, it's always hard to. Um, to know whether that additional layer will have enough technological differentiation and also whether having that dependence on the core technology will will ever allow you to really break out into a venture return case. Um, you know, if you take Unreal Engine and, and Fortnite, a, a big part of Fortnite's success is because Epic Games can obviously always access the bleeding edge of, of the Unreal Engine. And they built Unreal Engine in conjunction with Fortnite. N no other game has that that luxury. And so, you know, not 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 many games can can leverage and and um, capture the value that stems from that in the same way. I think that's one helpful framework also to look at procedural generation and AI. Right now, all the rage is stability AI and Midjourney. I haven't seen anything on top, at least on the gaming side, where I've pulled the trigger. Um, Inworld is, is still my only AI gaming investment, but it's very likely, I would say, that 23 will be a year for me where, where you know, there is a number two or three investment in that space. Mm. Yeah, that's all really interesting. Uh, well, what about the, the games themselves, Moritz? Um, you know, what type of games or founders or companies or specific genres um, are you looking for in terms of backing 
the studios that are are making these new upcoming games. Yeah, so I think, you know, I noticed this for myself that I probably have a bias toward um, AAA cross-platform experiences that stems a little bit from my own gaming background. Um, you know, by the way, we didn't touch on this during the blockchain discussion, but I think it's it's also sometimes a little bit too easy to fall in love with concepts um, that can happen on the AI side too. Yeah. Um, if you... You know, I I love the idea of true digital identity and and assets and ownership, but frankly, you know, in two thousand three, when I was selling all these items, playing Diablo two, and and funding my my college and grad school, effectively through just custodial market making, no one really cared that these characters or items were property of Blizzard, and that you had to go to great lengths with high friction through eBay and, uh, you know, synchronous uh, meetups in the game to trade the items. Like, this still all felt like your character and your item, and no one really worried about Blizzard taking it away from you. You know, it's, I think maybe on the AI side too, you look at ChatGPT and you're like, wow, this is the everything machine. And then you spend a bit more time with it and accuracy is actually a big issue, right? Like I think I think it's super interesting to see out what will happen on 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 whether Microsoft or others together with OpenAI can actually build a Google search competitor that is more compelling. Because right now I would still rather use Google search than ChatGPT. Um and sometimes the initial results are very Im- impressive, but it's really also hard to take it to the next level because um, inaccuracy supercharged is still inaccurate. Yep. And, you know, ad- adding, adding more compute to the same flawed logic doesn't necessarily turn it around. But I'm not an AI expert to have an opinion on that. But it's, you know, that's, that's kind of like what you struggle with as a VC too. And what's re- what, what makes our job pretty hard but you know I'm not, I'm not complaining so um back, back to the game studios i personally have a bias for AAA cross-platform um experiences like people who've who've had their design and publishing chops at blizzard riot epic games and are setting out to build a new game studio that ultimately can can step into that legacy of these these big companies that they left um paul who also heads europe for lightspeed and is part of the core gaming team um has tremendous deal flow in europe and is a little bit more mobile focused based also on his personal experiences with dots and giphy and then sean looks at at growth gaming and agnostic uh between AAA and mobile, but probably also leaning a little bit more on the mobile side. At, at that point, you can you can look at some scaled publishers with multiple IP uh, assets under their belt, and so that's that's probably on a high level how we'll divide it up. Ultimately, what we look for is top talent, um, and that's probably more important, much more important for me than a specific thesis uh, on a genre. Or, or type of game you're building for. We obviously want to make sure there is enough substance in the market and demand in the market. But um, you know those those top teams that are going for their ideas have usually done their homework on that, and so it's less of a concern. Gotcha. That makes sense. Well, we've talked about Web three. We've talked about AI. We've talked about the game studios themselves. I'm curious if there's anything else that you're excited about um, in the, in the games industry right now. Is there anything 
maybe that doesn't get enough attention that you want to shout out as an area or two that you're looking at? Um, yeah, I think um, I think there's a slate of novel 3D creation techniques that don't deserve uh, or that, that you know don't get enough attention, not not the attention that they deserve. And um, these are techniques such as NERF or photogrammetry or volumetric video. If you think about how we produce most uh, photorealistic looking content in 2D. So um, that's that's typically photos. Uh, we, we we leverage reality to create photorealistic 2D assets. And that's a very contrived way of saying, if you see a nice sunset, let's say, do you take out your, your phone to capture a picture of it? Or uh, do you open up Photoshop and try and recreate it digitally? I would say for most people, it's probably the former. And those photos look pretty good. And they can also be moving photos or videos. So we figured that part out. But for 3D, somehow we don't do it this way. If you want a video game with your cat in it, let's say, you wouldn't think about taking out your phone and, and holding it around your cat while it moves along and, and then you upload that into Unity or Unreal and you have a perfect like 3D model of your cat. People people shake their head and it's like, well, that's not how it works. Well, actually, I mean, volumetric video and, and Nerf has come along way and i think we're we're starting to get there that paired with ai technologies it would make sense that ultimately for photorealistic 3d creations you also start with reality and you don't start digitally from nothing um but it's super hard but i think that's also a super interesting area yeah well i'd love to talk more about that but we gotta we gotta start wrapping so maybe a, a final question for for you moritz is if any entrepreneurs want to reach out, uh, where can they best contact you or the the broader Lightspeed team? Yeah, they can obviously they can go to our website lsvp.com, um, or they can just reach out directly to our team members and me. I'm at Moritz at lsvp.com. You know, we'll we'll answer any inbound we receive. Awesome. Well, Moritz, thank you again for joining me today. I can't wait to to follow along with everything you're gonna do at Lightspeed and best of luck in 2023. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And to all of our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to give us a like, subscribe, five stars. It would mean a lot. We'll put the links to all things Moritz and Lightspeed in the episode description below. And of course, we'll drop some links to Novix resources as well. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.